This is Inside Geneva. I'm your host, Imogen Folks, and this is a Swiss Info production. In today's programme... This Universal Declaration of Human Rights may well become the international Magna Carta of all men everywhere. United Nations stands for the rights of every member of our human family. Today and every day, we will continue to work for justice, equality, dignity, and human rights for all. The High Commissioner has no aid budget, they have no army, they have no way to influence anybody other than through their public reporting and their public voice. We need a High Commissioner that can imagine a world away from the abyss and try to help us go there. Hello and welcome again to Inside Geneva. I'm Imogen Folks, and in today's programme, we're going to take another look at the search for the new United Nations Human Rights Commissioner. It's just a few weeks now until current Commissioner Michelle Bachelet leaves office. And as we record today's programme, there's very little information about who might be her successor. So, here on Inside Geneva... We'll look at Ms. Bachelet's legacy, successes and failures. We'll look at the selection process for what some call the world's toughest job. And we'll ask what qualities are needed to do it. Who better to discuss these things than the heads of the world's leading human rights groups? I'm delighted to have been able to talk to Ken Roth, Executive Director of Human Rights Watch. If you look at, for example, Madame Bachelet's utter failure during her recent trip to Beijing, the blame really begins with Guterres. And Agnes Calamar, Secretary General of Amnesty International. She stood to the United States on the issue of systemic racism and completely failed to hold China to account. I began by asking Ken Roth to assess Michelle Bachelet's time as a UN Human Rights Commissioner. Well, I think when, when she took the job, we thought, oh, great, you know, here is someone who has been a victim of human rights violations, who, you know, is a former president and so has a certain stature. Um, you know, we thought that she had the ingredients to make for a good high commissioner. But some of those ingredients, I think, also contributed to her downfall. Were you surprised when Michelle Bachelet made her announcement that she wouldn't be seeking a second term? I wasn't entirely surprised because her heart didn't seem to be in the job. You know, if she really wanted to do this job, she would have been, you know, outspoken even in difficult situations. She would have been, you know, looking for opportunities to press human rights against the worst abusers. And she wasn't really doing that. And so I, I wasn't surprised that she was looking for something else to do with her life. And from your first answer there, you're you're somewhat disappointed in. Michelle Bachelet. Before we go on to what disappointed you particularly, do you see successes in her four-year term? The High Commissioner did a decent job in easier situations. You know, she was also quite good about broad thematic issues. So she would talk about climate change or poverty and equality. Important topics, but topics where there's not a particular perpetrator. And, and that's something that her boss, Antonio Guterres, loves to do as well. And he says, I talk about human rights all the time, but he does it in broad, generic terms, you know, respect women's rights. And so nobody feels the heat. Nobody feels any pressure to do anything. And she seemed more comfortable with those big picture thematic approaches than with taking on particular difficult countries. 
And where do you think hopes invested in her, perhaps by you, by other human rights defenders, were were not realized? She felt that as a former president, she had special influence, that she could go and have a private conversation with another head of state and persuade him or her to better respect human rights. And the truth of the matter is, as High Commissioner, she has no clout other than her public voice and her ability to report publicly. You know, it's hard to imagine she walks in and there's some dictator who is suppressing the opposition and, and, you know, torturing dissidents in prison. And she says, you know, Mr. President, I'm a former president. I'm telling you, you shouldn't do that. That's not going to change anybody's mind. You know, the only way to change people's mind is through pressure, through public pressure. And she, her first instinct was not to use public pressure. It was to use her private diplomatic persuasion. And that isn't the job and it doesn't work. Now, the UN's human rights chief will be in China this week. Michelle Bachelet is the first person in the job to visit China in 17 years. A contentious and highly criticized visit comes at a time when Beijing is facing global backlash over alleged human rights abuses. Michelle Bachelet is viewed by many human rights defenders as having conducted a disastrous visit to China in the closing months of her time in office, in which she failed to publicly mention, let alone criticise, widespread evidence of human rights violations, most particularly against China's Muslim Uyghur population. But when I asked Agnes Calamar of Amnesty International how she felt about Bachelet's work, she too had some praise. The first success is who she is. The fact that she was appointed as a woman that had been uh, twice president of Chile, that she had led UN women. She had been a refugee, and as we all know, she had been uh, a personal victim of brutal dictatorship. I think it's important. It's important in terms of the messages that are being sent out. Second, I think she was very good and very effective at speaking up on a range of human rights that had not received equal attention, economic, social, cultural rights, and more generally speaking up on issues that had been neglected around um, poverty, health, inequality, climate change. So I'll say that's a second success, and it's not a small one, because uh, the OHCHR really needed to be much stronger, much firmer on the indivisibility of rights. Systemic racism in the wake of the BLM protest, she has been very strong. Uh, she was the high commissioner that had to deal with uh, the COVID pandemic. And on that issue, she was very good. She spoke about uh, the fact that it had highlighted and exacerbated uh, violations, um, inequalities, conflict around the world. So at a time where that form of global courage and leadership was required, she was there. So that's really quite a long and positive list from you. And yet Mm -hmm. we hear mostly what is kind of making news headlines is a more negative view. Do you share the disappointment, particularly over over things like China, or do you think that was almost a, a perhaps an impossible task? No, no, I, I don't think it was an impossible task. 
because of China. I think it's a difficult task, yes, but she has disappointed us. She certainly has disappointed me on a range of uh, countries. And yes, it does not mean that she was a failure in all aspects. Of course not. That's something that we need to hold on to. But in terms of the failures, they are quite substantive, I will say. She has not been systematic. She has not addressed double standard and in fact has committed herself double standard in the way she address human rights. Yes, China comes very loud, very strong, because China is a global superpower. Because if you cannot stand up to China, you may as well stop doing human rights work. China has global influence on human rights. It has influence within the UN. It has normative influence. It has economic influence. For those reasons and many more, you need to be able to hold China to account. If China wants to be a superpower, they must stand for human rights, for dignity. And as the high commissioner, she must remind China of their responsibilities vis-à-vis -vis Chinese people and vis-à-vis -vis the rest of the world. And that she has not done. I think she has privileged friendliness. She has privileged political engagement over principled engagement. And it's particularly striking given how she stood to the United States on the issue of systemic racism, as she should have, and completely failed to hold China to account. So the view seems to be Michelle Bachelet has been good at broad topics like inequality, racism, access to health and so on, not so good at calling out specific countries and their governments. But as Ken Roth points out, that's a weakness across the United Nations, not just at UN Human Rights. What makes the United Nations, um, I think, so bad at often promoting human rights is that it tends to succumb to pressure from its member states. And I should say that Antonio Guterres, the Secretary General, has been particularly susceptible to that pressure. He should be an important backer of the High Commissioner. But he tends to speak either in broad generic terms, you know, please support human rights, or he um, will focus on countries that are already pariahs, you know, so Myanmar. There's no great cost to criticizing the abuses by the junta. If you look at, for example, Madame Bachelet's utter failure during her recent trip to Beijing, the blame really begins with Guterres because he was intent on going to Beijing for the Olympics. Human Rights Watch and others said, how can you possibly do that? Once he was clearly going to do it anyway, we said, well, at least you've got to talk about the Uyghurs. You've got to talk about the, the crimes against humanity being committed against Uyghurs and other Turkic Muslims in Xinjiang. And he came back and said, aha, I did that. I persuaded Beijing to invite the high commissioner for a, quote, visit. Now, the visit was very important language because Bachelet had been pushing for an unfettered investigation, which was the appropriate thing to ask for. And Beijing had come back and said, no, 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 that would mean we're guilty. Just come for a friendly visit. And so when Guterres adopted Beijing's language and said, I've arranged for the high commissioner to come for a visit, she was stuck with it. Um, it meant she had to come and have a nice, pleasant chit-chat, but no investigation, which is where the whole thing started off on the wrong foot. She then made it worse 
by completely adopting Beijing's language, you know, referring to a terrorism problem, you know, talking about, you know, rather than detention centers, she was talking about, you know, vocational education training centers. So there's plenty of fault on both sides, but it began with the Secretary General. And I think we have to recognize that. Human rights are the foundation of peaceful societies and sustainable development. And while Secretary-General Antonio Guterres has publicly recommitted the UN to defending and promoting human rights, he too tends to deal in generalities, leaving, in theory, the Human Rights Commissioner to deal with those awkward country-specific details. It's beginning to be clear why some call this the UN's toughest job. Agnes Calamar again. Yes, the job is tough. And yes, it's difficult to navigate the road between speaking truth to power and uh, managing tough and difficult relationship. That I get. When she caved in to China in such a public fashion, I think she, she did betray her mandate and she did betray the UN altogether. That's I think something that cannot be excused, the trip to China would have been difficult for anyone, but she made it particularly a failure. Well, we are looking for a new one. What qualities would you like to see? Do you see any risks to a human rights commissioner for just going head to head with China or do you only see advantages? I think you need to be able to pick your battles. But that was an enormous battle here, crimes against humanity. If you don't pick that one, I don't know which one you're going to pick. I think you need to assess the risk of being quiet, not just the risk of being outspoken. And you need to look at not only the immediate impact with a given country, but also the short, medium and long term impact on human rights and on victims around the world. That's what we expect from a high commissioner. They need to be smart in how they use their power, but they need to be smart in an all encompassing way, you know, understanding the impact of being quiet, not just the impact of being outspoken. Now, if you're asking me what kind of qualities would we want in a future high commissioner, we need someone who understands and is committed to human rights. We need someone who is courageous and who has, is able to put forward a vision of a better world, a stronger world in terms of it, their human rights commitment. We need someone with great diplomatic skills, of course, and that means ability to be firm and strong in private and in public. We need a great tactician. We need someone who can feel the pulse and determine how can human rights be the most successful, depending on the tactics I'm going to adopt. You need to have someone who is a good public advocate, who has that capacity to feel and to interact with people. And that's what a high commissioner is all about. It's not just a super diplomat. It's not just a political envoy. It's far more than that. It's an advocate. It's a political analyst. It's an expert. It's someone who can manage all of those skills and maximize them for the protection of human rights for us now and for the future generation. It's quite a long list 
of no. qualities. You I think it's a, it's leadership, Imogen. It's leadership at the global level. The person that you have in charge of health or in charge of climate change are not just technicians and they are not just diplomats. They are leaders. They must be leaders. And what we need are global leaders, people who can provide technical advice when it's required, speak strategically, provide vision, be prepared to engage diplomatically in the background, but also be courageous enough to speak publicly. If you don't have that in our global leaders, you may as well give up having global leaders. The problem, of course, is that global leaders like those in the United Nations have to deal with national leaders. And it's those same national leaders, the UN member states, who decide UN policy, how much money it gets for its humanitarian work or its peacekeeping operations, for example. So, however morally right it might be to call out each and every human rights violation or discriminatory act, it's never going to be easy. Over the years, I've seen a growing divide at the Human Rights Council between Western democracies, who claim they want every violation exposed, unless, to be honest, they find themselves in the spotlight, and countries from the global south who claim finger-pointing is counterproductive. But, Ken Roth warns, the idea that quiet diplomacy is better than public criticism can be simply an excuse for repressive governments to carry on being repressive. This is the Chinese government's approach. You should only speak politely to each other about human rights practices and basically defer to each government to do its own thing. What it really, you know, Beijing is proposing is just let every autocratic repressive government do its thing and don't really bother them. Just have a nice, polite conversation about it. Now, you know, of course, the autocrats of the world love that approach because it doesn't work. It doesn't generate any pressure on them to change. Now, you know, there are you know, occasional situations where so-called technical assistance might be of use. This would be a government that is well-intentioned, wants to promote human rights, but simply lacks the know-how. The truth of the matter is those are not the situations that come to the attention of the UN Human Rights Council. Um, the situations before the Human Rights Council are the governments that have very much decided that they are going to commit serious violations in order to stay in power or to achieve some other goal. And technical assistance is utterly inappropriate in those situations. What you need is pressure to change the calculation, to change the, the cost-benefit analysis that these governments enter into that lead them to try to cling to power through repression. You famously apparently told former human rights commissioner Zaid Rad al-Hussein, I understand he took your advice before he took the job to come out swinging. Is that your advice to any UN Human Rights Commissioner? There are no risks in speaking out. Come out and say what you think and say bluntly where your concerns are from, from day one. That is my advice. The High Commissioner has no aid budget. They have no army. They have no way to influence anybody other than through their public reporting and their public voice. So if somebody wants to be High Commissioner, they should do the job. And the only way to put pressure on abusive governments is by speaking publicly. Now, is there a cost to that? Yes, it might cost you a second term. You know, yes, it might cost your boss, you know, a, a disturbed phone call from Beijing or Moscow. That's life. That's what the job is about. And so if somebody can't put up with that, 
they shouldn't take the job. It's a very tough job, though, isn't it? I mean, some people say it's the toughest at at the UN. As you say, there is no budget. They're not urging countries to do nice things like feed children, you know, or shelter a, a few refugees. They're actually saying, you know what, that's bad what you're doing. You need to change it. Look, this is what I do day in and day out. You but know, you're that, not a UN official. No, but but if you're going to be a UN official taking this post as the chief promoter of human rights, you better be willing to put up with it. Your job is to put pressure on abusive governments. Yes, you're going to take the heat. If you can't handle that, you shouldn't take the job. So who will take the job? Of course, events may overtake this podcast. Four weeks from now, we should know who the new Human Rights Commissioner will be. Traditionally, rights organisations like Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International are quietly consulted by the UN during the selection process. All the more surprising then, just a few weeks before Michelle Bachelet leaves office, to hear that Agnes Calamar and Ken Roth have heard nothing. We are not being consulted on that uh, recruitment. There has not been any process so far that I can think of that has that could meet the requirement of uh, transparency and openness, uh, but that is not going to silence us. So, of course, we will provide our view and opinions whether or not it's being asked. To say that this has been a little bit of an untransparent process is a rather a euphemism there. Um, there has been no transparency so far, no consultation that I'm aware of. And there should be. Um, this, you know, this post, the High Commissioner post, is an extremely important one, you know, the most important in the UN system for promoting human rights. And you would think that if the Secretary General were determined to select somebody who was going to be effective in that post, he would consult with the leading human rights groups that have a sense of how to get it done. Um, so far, there's been zip in terms of consultation, nothing. That does seem a pity. The UN Human Rights Commissioner is a hugely important job. Millions of people around the world living with persecution and repression look to UN Human Rights for support and for justice. Agnes Calamar believes a strong, determined commissioner has never been more needed. The world is in a a situation of perfect storm. I personally like to describe it as being on the edge of an abyss, whether it is climate change, whether it it is inequality, now the aggression by Russia against Ukraine, which is a military aggression, but it's also a normative aggression. It's an aggression against the multilateral system. The food crisis with millions of people that are likely to go hungry, if not die. COVID, the technological revolution, which we don't quite understand and which will have incredible impact on our societies. So the world is not looking at a very rosy future right now. We're looking, frankly, at the bottom of an abyss. And that's what High Commissioner will need to be able to navigate to try to find a path around the abyss or away from the abyss, a path that we can bring people along, a path that will be uh, protective of dignity, protecting of as many human life as we can, a path that is not only thinking about the then and now, but is also future uh, focused, because what we do now will have dramatic 
if not lethal or livable implication for our grandchildren. So we need a high commissioner that can imagine a world away from the abyss and try to help us go there. So finally, as we come almost to the end of this edition of Inside Geneva, what do human rights defenders think should be the most urgent issues in the new commissioner's entry? Ken Roth is clear. China. When I say that China is the biggest threat, that's not to say that I, I don't see other major abusers out there. We're obviously speaking at a moment where the Russian government is you know, systematically targeting civilians in Ukraine. So that's a that's a serious problem. But even though Russia is attacking Ukraine and aspiring democracy, the Russian government does not present itself an alternative model. You know, nobody wakes up in the morning and says, well, I wish I could be like the kleptocratic autocracy that Putin built. Putin is trying to preserve his kleptocracy, and that's about it. But the Chinese government is actually trying to change the UN system in a way that would make the world safe for dictatorship. And it is doing that by actively promoting this sense that you know, human rights should only be promoted through private dialogue that doesn't change anybody's cost-benefit analysis. It's actually trying to redefine human rights to mean simply the increase in a country's gross domestic product that rips up all the human rights treaties and essentially is an invitation to continuing dictatorship. So that's why I view you know, China as the dominant ideological threat. And it also obviously has the economic capacity to back that. But that's not to you know, diminish the very serious threat to human rights in particular countries that we see in, in a range of places, whether it's you know, the, the Myanmar junta or you know, Putin suppressing the, the rights of Russians so they don't speak out against the war, you know, Lukashenko in Belarus, who is just you know, denying the people the right to choose their government, the Sudanese military that has just you know, committed yet another coup. There are you know, many, many abusive governments who tend to vote together at the United Nations against any pro-human rights initiative. But it really is China that is dominant in terms of offering an alternative non-human rights ideology. What are your hopes or ideals for UN human rights? There, there must be th things you think, this is what I would like to see. This is what UN human rights defenders would like to see and what we think would work better, apart from just, as you say, the calling out. Well, I mean, let me stress two things. I mean, first, I think, you know, one silver lining in the Ukraine conflict is that there has been, you know, a broad coalition coming out in defense of democracy. Um, I think that that could potentially have positive ramifications beyond Ukraine if it is seen as a genuine defense of democracy. The question is, you know, do people understand that the principles at stake here are democratic principles, not just a geopolitical contest with Russia? Um, but there is an opening there, which I think could lead in a more positive direction. The other thing I think it is worth stressing is that, you know, we've seen across the world people come to the streets in defense of democracy, even at the expense of, of detention or, or possibly being shot. People standing for accountable, rights-respecting democratic government. We've seen protests in, in Hong Kong, Thailand, Myanmar, Russia, Belarus, you know, Sudan, Uganda, Cuba, Nicaragua, I mean, around the world, they don't always prevail, but they show where the people are. And governments facing those kind of protests lose the capacity to pretend that they are representing their people. They're cleaning the power simply through military means. And that's not a long-term strategy. So that you know, makes me optimistic. 
And I would hope that the United Nations and its various parts begin to stand with the people of the world rather than their abusive governments. I realize that's difficult for a club of governments to do, but that's what the ideals of the UN Charter would push it to do. And that brings us to the end of this edition of Inside Geneva. My thanks to Agnes Calamar of Amnesty International and Ken Roth of Human Rights Watch for sharing their thoughts and expertise. Do join us again on the next edition of Inside Geneva, where we'll be asking, would our world be a safer, happier place if women made more of the big decisions? We'll be talking to three women leading the campaign to get more of us involved in international peace and security. Do join us then. In the meantime, thank you for listening to Inside Geneva. reminder you've been listening to Inside Geneva from Swiss Info. You can hear more by going to our website swissinfo.ch including several episodes which have charted our path through the pandemic over the last year. We explore other key humanitarian challenges too from the future of the United Nations to the war in Syria to look at the history behind the Ottawa Convention against landmines and of course you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Imogen Folks. Thank you again for listening. Discover science and innovation in Switzerland with the Swiss Connection podcast. In the current series, we visit CERN and explore what they're up to next in their quest to solve the mysteries of the universe. We uncover groundbreaking discoveries in a Roman archaeological site and get the first glimpse of an exciting supersonic plane powered by hydrogen. From the tiniest particles to the vastness of space, satisfy your scientific curiosity by listening to the Swiss Connection podcast for a mind-expanding experience with Swiss Info. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to follow or subscribe to get your latest episode on time.